You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. So why preach on money? It might be something that's impolite. It might be something that makes you uncomfortable. It might be something that you're like, I don't know if I want to invite my friends to this four-week series. But if you did invite a friend, kudos to you. Because money, we're preaching on it because I know we're struggling with it. It's a number one stressor in marriages. It's a number one stressor, Americans say, personally, according to data. And second, we talk about money because Jesus preaches on money. The Bible talks about finances all the time, and so we want to talk about them too. And the third reason is we're talking about money because I want to pastor you to flourish in your relationship with God, and that includes money, where money's not a curse, and money's not your God but money's actually a gift from God to use to his glory and for your good. And this week, Paul continues in his letter to the Corinthian church, which is a wealthy metropolitan city, and he's encouraging their giving towards the Christians in the Jerusalem church who are in need. And he encourages these Corinthians with the gospel. He lays out a big, beautiful gospel to encourage them of what Jesus has done, but he also uses the Macedonian example. They would be like their hillbilly neighbors to the north. So he's kind of talking to New York City, or for, for us, talking to Atlanta, but using a county in South Alabama to say, well, look what they've done. Look what God's grace has used in their life. Come on, Atlanta, you can do it. That's what he's doing here. And starts with this idea of a generous giver makes a plan. Look at verse one through five with me. It says, for I know of your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. I'm sending the brothers so that you may be ready. So that I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exactation. And the Corinthians had made a plan to give. Paul had talked about them, this plan to give. Paul had shared their giving as a motivation to the Macedonians to do likewise. Paul even sent people ahead to make sure everything was on schedule. And you see this passage, you're like, what's this got to do with me? Well, hear this, church. Hear the Bible right here. It is not less spiritual to plan or prepare in life or money. It is not more spiritual or more spirit-filled to be erratic or sporadic or spontaneous with giving or with our faith. Sadly, the pastor that tosses his notes every Sunday is probably not filled with the spirit. He is probably underprepared and trying to put on a show instead of carefully delivering the word of God to you. And giving, following the spirit of God, should look like the fruits of the spirit, amen? We're told exactly what it looks like to be spirit-filled. To be spirit-filled is Galatians 5. It makes you full of love, full of joy, full of peace, full of patience, the kind of patience that can make a plan, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, the kind of planning faithfulness takes, gentleness, self-control, the kind of stuff that makes great plans. A plan isn't boring, it's responsible, and reasonable for something that's important in our lives. We plan when we make dates. That's how we show I am interested in you. 
That's how it works. We plan for our kids. Shows that we care and that we're good parents. We plan for a party because we care about someone. So we can plan and budget for giving generously too. Planning is just a way of prioritizing what's most important in your life. Planning is just a way to prioritize what's most important in your life. And so that's why Paul is reiterating the plan with the Corinthians. But it's not just about having a plan. The Bible is actually concerned with the attitude of your heart with whatever plan you set or don't set. Look at verse six and seven with me. It says, so that you may be willing, as ready as a willing gift, not as an exactation. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Scripture isn't concerned just about us having a plan or having a good plan, but rather scripture is concerned with our heart. It's concerned with the attitude we carry into giving. And look at this chart with me as it breaks it down. We see the verses. It says to give this way, give as a willing gift. Give in a way that you want to, not in an unwilling gift or a taking gift or a gift that feels like taxes. If giving feels like taxes in your life, you're not in a good place. You're not in a good place. The church, missions, mercy is not the government. It's a free, willing gift. Likewise, it says bountifully give, and we give bountifully because we believe if we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully not to make us rich in this life, but to make us rich in the next life. That we believe when we give, we're not losing anything. We're investing in heaven. We're investing in God's mission. We're investing in something that God says will reward us. So it says, don't don't give sparingly, give bountifully. Verse seven says this, give cheerfully, not reluctantly. Because when we give cheerfully to God, we are realizing that we're ultimately giving God what's his, that giving is a part of worship, that rewards are coming, and realize God doesn't just require our money. He actually doesn't want us to give unless we can give cheerfully. Reluctant giving does not honor God. You might say, well, why is that, Justin? It's because willing, bountiful, cheerful giving realizes that God's a giver. Our giving analyzes our heart. To live on the this side, left, your left side of the chart shows that deep down you believe God's a giver and who's given all things. He's given his son. He's given this world. He gives you the oxygen, the bones in your body, the blood that pumping through your body, processing what's going on visually. Every little part of things in this room, God has given, including you. But if we live on the right side of the chart, deep down we still believe God's a taker out to limit you and your life and take from you. That's a wildly different thing because in the gospel, God has given us everything. He's given us proof upon proof that he's a giver, the ultimate giver. But if we believe God's a taker, we'll never give cheerfully, willingly, or bountifully. Our heart should not mourn our giving, but instead rejoice. And notice how it says, God loves a cheerful giver. 
Why does God love cheerful giving? Well, he loves cheerful giving because it's evidence of a truly transformed heart. It shows that the gospel's gone down into the garden of heart and is starting to produce a wonderful, wonderful harvest of righteousness in us. It shows a spiritually mature heart. Without letting the gospel transform your wallet, you will remain spiritually immature. Why? Because you're not trusting God with this huge part of your life. God's not poor. He doesn't need your money. But boy, you need giving or greed's gonna win. Greed will become your God. Just as Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. It's an impossibility. It is simply God's will for your life to grow in giving and generosity, just like forsaking sexual immorality, just like loving God's word, just like loving God's people. And it shows maturity. It's like, why does that show maturity, Justin? Well, it shows maturity because our generous giving is patterned after God's character himself. Look at verses eight and nine. It says, God, who is able to make all grace abound you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God gives to you that you may abound in good works. He gives to you that you may be generous. Verse nine, as it is written in the Psalms, he has distributed freely, he's given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Which leads us to kind of the same chart as before. This is who God is. He's the willing giver. He distributes freely. He doesn't have to give us anything, but he gives us everything. He's the bountiful giver. He's given to the poor. He gives to people who can't give back to him. Not that a rich man could either, but he gives to everybody. Look at this. He's a cheerful giver. His righteousness endures forever. You might say, what's righteousness and cheerfulness have to do with each other? God's righteousness is his perfection. One of God's great qualities is he is perfectly joyful and satisfied at all times. The reason God is a generous giver is that God as a trinity is perfectly joyful and satisfied with one another, that they overflow with love. That's what generosity is. It's the overflow of love in your life. This is the pattern of God. And so it makes we see God's heart that God is a generous giver to us. Giving isn't primarily about meeting needs of people around you, but about becoming like God himself. Giving isn't primarily about meeting needs of those around you, but about becoming like God himself. And God gives us grace to give like he gives. God is generous with money, but God is also generous with all of life. And a generous giver's giving results in a harvest of righteousness. What an interesting word. Look at verse 10. It says, he, God, who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So what's a harvest of righteousness? It kind of sounds like a, like a misguided Christian cereal brand. You know, like Eloise, do you non-GMO, whole grain, keeping Americans at work on the farm? That's not a brand. Could be. Someone call me, put it together. In the harvest of righteousness, Scripture gives us five clear things, things that you can bank on that happen when you give generously. This is how God is at work. Check it out, verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. As we are generous, God gives us even more ability to be generous. 
It starts with money and increases to every way in your life. The point isn't to get rich, but that you'd be rich in good works. That if you are faithful for little, then God will entrust you to be faithful with much. Look for it as we start the Luke series in February. It's a principle all over the parables. It's a core idea that if I'm not faithful with the little things, I cannot be entrusted with more. It's the same principle we do with our children for good parenting. It's what God's doing to us. Are we faithful with the little we have? As we're, second one, which two through us will produce thanksgiving to God, second harvest of righteousness. As we are generous, it will cause people to give thanks or glory to God. And there's this chain reaction. God's generous to us. We're generous again. Thanksgiving to God results. Third harvest of righteousness. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Church, as you're generous, as ministry gets done, it results in even more thanksgiving, both the work itself and then the thanksgiving about the work. Fourth thing, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. As we are generous, it clarifies the gospel's power. That people see you being generous or see the ministry getting done, and it confirms for them that the gospel is real, the gospel is powerful, the gospel actually changed your life, so it can change my life too. Part of the power of us sharing the gospel is letting our generosity lead the way. You want someone to pay attention to your Christianity? If they see your habits with money change, you have their attention. There are a few things Americans pay more attention to than money. And if you are a generous person, you already have people's attention. The fifth thing, it's this harvest of righteousness. This whole, this paragraph is loaded. The generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. As we are generous church, it makes people long and pray for us. Did you know your money actually knits you together with other people? That Jesus says where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If there's stuff you don't care about in life, you're probably not invested in it. The stuff you care about in life, you're probably invested in. Would you use money as a tool to invest yourself in the right things? in God's people, and mercy, and missions, and your local church, and each other. It says money is the logs that start the fire to let you burn in love for other people. It makes people long and pray for you. See, generous giving forms you into God's character. It gives God glory. It shows the gospel. It even brings us together. We think money divides us in life. Yes, the wrong use of money divides us in life. Have a grandparent or a parent die and watch how it happens in a where, where greed is king in people's heart. But God's saying generosity can actually bring people together. It means it's an essential part of being a healthy Christian, of building a church, of loving God's, living and loving God's mission in the world. So frankly, don't miss out that your generosity is a vital part of what God is doing in your life. Don't ignore the God that wants to form you with money. But notice, while Paul's talking about money to the Corinthians, he quotes 
this Old Testament proverb, and it's a sentiment Jesus says kind of all, all the time, that those who sow sparingly reap sparingly, and those who sow bountifully reap bountifully. And in this room, I don't think we have a single farmer. Am I correct? Yeah, we're a little too metropolitan to, to, to get this fully. But sowing is the action of a farmer throwing out seed and planting seed in the ground. And generous sowing in life isn't just writing checks. It's your actions. It's your attitude. It's a plan put into practice so that generosity becomes a part of your work and home. And this is where we take it a little further than just financial giving. We usually work with people. That's, that's what work is. They're either your teammates, your customers, your clients, or maybe your boss. What would it look like to be generous at work? Like, really? Not just kind. To be kind is decent. Jesus says even pagans love each other. So if you're like, I'm really nice at work. Well, congrats. They pay you to be there. <laughs> you are not going to win over anyone over by being kind. By being unkind, you might lose folks and friends and your job, but kindness is just a baseline for humanity here. What if you became a champion of generously sharing credit for your successes? Is there something else I can help with? No, I'm good, actually. (laughs) You know it's convicting when the technology's like, you know, having trouble with it. Even more generous. Could you own failures readily as a team? What if you gave encouraging compliments, intentionally putting the focus on others, not to manipulate them, but genuinely complimented people? Did you know almost four out of five people when surveyed said the most important thing to get them through their workday is recognition for good work? And it doesn't even have to be from the boss that people are that starved for encouragement in a sad, hard world that you can flip someone's day and week by just recognizing something good they do at a job you're doing with them. To generously put the spotlight on others costs you nothing except taking the spotlight somewhat off yourself. It's tough if you're like, I never encourage anybody. It's probably because you're comfortable sitting in the spotlight. But it really is okay to tilt the can up here onto somebody else. When people don't give compliments, don't ask questions of others, don't say thank you, don't highlight others, it reveals a heart that's not generous, no matter how much you write out of your bank account to charity. The nature of generosity is the benefit of someone else. And our words reveal our heart. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 12. It says, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What about at work with the whole organization? Not just interpersonally with coworkers, but organizational Why? Could you be someone that's more generous by asking directly if someone has a moment to speak rather than assuming a picked up phone or an open door means their time is yours? It's a quick thing, but how much respect and generosity say, hey, do you really have time to talk about this and give them a real estimate like it really will be five minutes or say it's 50 minutes and schedule a meeting? Could you share info and insight easily 
not hoard it, not be embittered, not withhold it so that others don't fail? Could you be a free sharer of your insight, not exacting an exchange or a price to work with you? Could you lead conversations with the topic you wish to discuss, being kind and clear over mysterious or building distrust or doing a switcheroo on your boss or coworkers? Would you be willing to mentor younger or newer employees officially or not? That you take the organization's mission as your own at work, that you play a vital role in its future, not just getting the job done today. Could you give away lunchtime hangs, not just to friends, but to the lonely and awkward at work? What if you were so secure in the Lord that you didn't worry about moving up the ladder or popularity, but you sought out the lonely, the awkward, the new people, and made space for them regularly just to love them? That's a generous heart. Finally, what would it be like to be generous to your boss? Could you give yourself a way to empathize with him or her? Could you choose to take their decisions and flesh out the next steps over wait for them? Could you choose to make your bosses work easier and better, not to be a teacher's pet, but just simply to be generous and have the empathy that leading things isn't easy? Remembering to work, remember, to work with grumbling is a sin in the New Testament. Just an explicit command that grumbling work, it ain't for the Lord. But hard work with thankfulness sure does show the gospel. Most of the witnessing at work either doesn't happen or falls completely flat because of failures at generosity. To be generous with gospel witnessing at work, it's, to be generous is going to lead to a loving relationship at work because that's how people understand love and that's how God primarily loves us. Think about it. We can say God loves you, God loves you, God loves you all the time, but how do you really experience God's love? The generosity of giving us life in this world, the generosity of giving his only son and sacrifice for our sins, the generosity of then giving us his spirit, the generosity of giving us a church, the generosity of being a part of the grandest, greatest mission in the history of the world. You experience God's love as generosity primarily. It's love and action. What about the neighborhood? What about the people around your physical home, your apartment, your home, your townhome? Our trunk or treat and Easter invites will probably only be as successful as our generosity in lending lawnmowers. That's a pretty direct correlation. Could be lending a car even, celebrating holidays with your neighbors, listening to your chatty, lonely neighbor for long, long periods of time? Are you generous enough with your schedule to allow for interruptions? Or is it so tight that there really isn't room to connect with anybody new? Are you generous with your weekend enough to stay in one place long enough to make new and deepening relationships? It takes time to form meaningful, generous relationships. It takes planning far in advance. 
Some of us can write checks all day, but if someone legitimately asks to borrow your lawnmower, <laughs> it's kind of like them asking for a loan. We have to hold our, po- our possessions lightly, knowing God owns them too. God cares more about people than our stuff, even if our stuff is nice, even if our stuff is valuable, even if our stuff is useful. Would you loosen up your grip on time? Would you forget jockeying for a position at work? It's okay to do great work and want to move up, but would you lose the rat race feel to it? Would you hold possessions lightly, even live simply, instead to grab hold of a vision for God's glory? that your generous life matters to God in this hurting world. I mentioned the lawnmower because that actually happened to me. And I had quite a gut check in Louisville. I was like, uh, boy, I love this lawnmower. I was like, let me think about it. Went inside, didn't feel great about it. I had to go find my friend and give him my lawnmower. Here's our hope. Paul doesn't talk about our giving and generosity apart from God's grace. The Greek word for grace or thanksgiving is charis, and it actually appears 10 times in these two chapters. Look with me on the board real quick. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Grace motivates giving. He pleaded with us for the privilege, the grace of sharing in the service to the saints, grace to share in giving, to bring also to completion this act of grace. It's grace to give. You also may excel in this grace of giving. Again, grace to give. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's God's grace that motivates giving. I thank God, grace to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern. We thank God for giving grace and changing us as we carry the offering, this grace, which we administer. Again, it's grace to give. God is able to make all grace abound to you. God gives grace. They will long and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God. God, grace changes our hearts to give. And last, thanks be, grace be to God for this indescribable gift. Again, we thank God for changing us by grace. They're tied together because God is a generous God, most particularly in the gospel, what makes grace real. God's intervention in our lives is grace. He gives us himself and changes us from the inside out. That's God's grace to us vertically, that the gospel, that Jesus came, died for us, took our sins, rose from the dead, so that whoever believes in him, takes their sins to Jesus, repents and believes, is free, forgiven forever, and given a new life from God himself. That's how life is interrupted. That's how the story of a Christian has a before and an after. It's a life change for good. His grace forgives our sins and gives us new hearts. New hearts that thank God who has given to us and even thank God for motivating us to give just like him. And when we keep God's vertical grace in view, we will be motivated to be graceful givers horizontally. One comes before the other. Vertical grace of God turns into a horizontal generosity to everybody else. Giving with generosity, love, and thankfulness, you will have a thankfulness to have the opportunity to give instead of begrudging. Does the chain reaction of gospel generosity stop with you? 
or continue to get stronger as God's generosity passes through you. And as we've talked about money for three weeks and we got one more week in our series, if you feel just this is an overwhelming series for you, that deep down you've not considered money and financial stewardship a whole lot, I just wanna be so clear, friends. The grace of God is for you today. Both the forgiveness of sins of disobedience or, 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 or not paying attention to it, but also grace to change us. That God forgives us in order to transform our heart, to live a new life. God's forgiveness for you is real. God's power, just as is to the Corinthians, 10 times in two chapters, is real to you. That you can start a new relationship with God and a new relationship with money today. 